there, and welcome to Go Crows, the internet's only Smallville podcast. Definitely don't look it up. <laughs> My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hello. And we screwed up this week. <laughs> but boy, am I excited to tell y'all about it. I don't think we screwed up, necessarily. I think Hulu was just trying to protect us. That w- For the first and last time. Yep. And it worked out, because now we will have four episodes this time, and... Four episodes next time, which will take us through the end of season one. Finally. Been a minute, hasn't it? It's taken (laughs) us almost a year. You know, that's appropriate. That's true. We are experiencing the Smallville in real time-ish. So this time around, we did episodes 14 through 17, which, as has become the standard for this show, at least in this first season, includes a wide array of qualities. Yeah, that's a good phrase. I was trying to think of a way to... These have qualities. Because <laughs> how does one begin to explain what good means for Smallville? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? <laughs> These episodes kind of got away from, from kryptonite in any way, shape, or form. I mean, kryptonite caused the mutations and such, but yeah, it wasn't really a focal point as much. Which kind of worked in its favor, more or less. I mean, this show has always resented the fact that it's a Superman show. Mm-hmm. Which, before now, we've only seen shoot it in the foot. But this time, it feels like it gave it a little more freedom in certain cases. Yeah, it's definitely leaning more into the monster of the week thing at this point. And it's, thankfully, leaned a bit off of the mythology building that it kept trying to do around Clark. Thank God. All right. So, the episodes we watched this time were... The episodes we watched this time were Zero, Nicodemus, Stray, and Reaper. Would you like to... Would you like to draw the short straw first on our potted summaries, or shall I lead us off? Oh, boy. I'll I'll start. I'll do the first half. Alright, so, (laughs) Zero. Go. Honestly, I love Zero. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) Everything about it. Is the whole reason you watched the show. Zero is a good episode for a given value of good. In this case, it is that Lex's past comes back to haunt him yet again, and he has to be a damsel in distress. Um, We get to see Lex be an extremely catty, bitchy gay. Totally, we'd never say that, but that's definitely what's happening here. Um, He... Some shit went down in Metropolis a couple years ago when he was 18 and drinking underage in a club. And now someone is back for revenge. And But then, of course, it goes right into the next episode. Nicodemus is such a piece of shit that Hulu actually skipped over it and we had to go back and watch it again when we realized we're not where we're supposed to be. Nicodemus is basically just Smallville's attempt at making the Star Trek episode This Side of Paradise with the horny flower spores. Which goes about as well as you can imagine. Now take it down a few notches. Mm -hmm. Take it down a few notches. (laughs) Uh, Would you like to read the Google summary? Because it is truly the worst thing to ever burn my eyeballs. Oh lord, what's the Google summary? Alright, hold on. I have to pull it up because... But yes, these these magical flower spores start making everybody in town act horny and or violent. Very unfortunate on many levels. Clark tries to solve the riddle of a mysterious flower that removes the inhibitions of Smallville's residents, turning Jonathan into a couch potato, Lana into a Lolita, and Pete into a potential killer. Do I just have to start reading the, the Google summaries from now on out? Because 
That is succinct, and yet and, horrible. And yet real bad. You know what, listeners, let us know if you want me to just bring these up, because, my god. We'll put that aside for this week. All right. So after Nicodemus, we have Stray, which is a small, precious psychic child ends up in Clark's care until his terrible guardians who have been using his powers to do crimes come looking for him and everything goes real, real bad. It's so much. We get the first mention of something that's later going to be very important, which is Julian. And then we wrap this up on Reaper, which is just the Ice Powers episode again, except he turns people to ash. A guy falls out a window and dies after he's caught giving- Trying to euthanize his mother. At her request. So he's walking around the crow style, killing people with his hands. The crow, if he was also rogue. Which leads us into our monsters of the week. I guess the the villain of the week is gaslighting. Well, also it's dead guy McGee, but that's just a body double. But but also fuck Coronemic though. I need you to to give the internet the whole story of why you hate this guest star with a burning passion. Look, I I know a lot of y'all probably liked Parker Lewis can't lose, but fuck Coronemic. I hate him. You see, I was a big fan of Stargate, and one of the sort of side effects of, from what I can tell, just the increasing militarization of the U.S. in the wake of 9-11 involved a mentality shift for that show into a more pro-military, more adversarial situation. Like, it was always colonialist fantasy, but much more adversarial as the seasons went on after 9-11. And one of the problems was that um, the character Daniel Jackson started to get sidelined because he didn't fit that structure very well. And Daniel was played by Michael Shanks. He was played by James Spader in the movie. And he was the um, archaeologist, anthropologist, bleeding heart liberal character. So for season five, as a finale, they decided that the best thing to do was kill him and replace him with a guy who could do all the same things, but was an alien. Why? Not like in a costume. Just... Just a human from another planet, but with, like, spectacular recall. Corin Nemec played the character of Jonas Quinn, whom I hate. Jonas Quinn. What is it about the name Jonas that just really involves a fuckboy? That was the second Jonas they'd had on that show. Was the other one also the worst? Yes. The other one uh, enslaved a population and declared himself God. Oh, did he need a Within spaceship? Within like three weeks of being on another planet. No, he was he was from Earth. Oh, well. We bring our own supplies when we when we declare ourselves God and colonize other planets. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yep. But yeah. So when Corin Nemec's smarmy fucking face popped up in this episode, the very first time I watched it, I formed a burning resentment for him. I get to, You do get to see him die twice, which is nice. But, but there's no actual super-powered villainy in this episode, which is interesting. Yeah, it's just plain old oh no the consequences of my actions (laughs) which i'm kind of into like again i feel like smallville really resents its supernatural elements and it's interesting to see that so clear cut because it's probably got some of its stronger plotting in this episode when it just has to rely on earth logic for everything and when it's like pulling that twist where it's trying to convince you that it's a haunting but actually Mm -hmm. i think it's Still very pulpy TV, but this episode is strong because it centers around its strongest actor and has to do the most work to make its 
narrative makes sense. I think this show a lot of times relies on, I don't know, the powers did it. The Green Rocks did a thing that we haven't had them do before, but totally. We haven't said they can't do it, so... But yeah, and this all happened three years ago at a place called Club Zero, which is now defunct. Zero consequences. Zero consequences. Do you see? Which is also a great opportunity for them to say, hey, look, we have this extremely empty set. Totally, it's because it's a closed down nightclub. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. The dude himself isn't super compelling. It, he's just there to be the doorway by which we look into Lex's issues. But Coronemic does a fine enough job with that. Yeah, and then um, and then there's another another guy. Coronemic plays the guy who died in the club, but it turns out that the brother of the girl who was dating Coronemic was in prison when this all went down, but got out of prison and found a random guy who looked like Coronemic and used him to fuck with Lex for a week or so and then shoots him. He's mad because his sister died. Not in the event. She, she committed suicide. So he blames Lex because clearly you killed the love of her life. And it turns out, in fact, that Lex had been doing all of this to protect her because she was the one who actually pulled the trigger. Yeah, and it was this whole thing where Lex specifically brought her to the club to, like, stir some shit and be a bitchy gay by exposing her boyfriend for cheating. It's some real Chloe from uh, Apartment 23 energy. It was beautiful. Like, Lex would fuck a guy on your birthday cake if necessary. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. And it is... The most Smallville cum supernatural thing that all of this centers around a woman who doesn't actually matter in the scheme of things. Like, she has a few lines where she's shocked about this central cheating event. Then she dies off screen. And then we learned that she was, in fact, crucial to this in the aftermath. As much as I really like this portrayal of Lex Luthor and, you know, Rosenbaum is killing it. As always, it's just a setup for his man pain about this woman's life-shattering event. Yeah. Well, especially because there's this emphasis on how he never contacted her again because he had to absent himself from her and protect her, which should connect to something about Clark, but doesn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It should. And I feel like this was a missed opportunity to really play into the fact that, like, if you want this to be about... Lex battling with his inner, well, demons, but also like his ends justify the means kind of mentality and how that eventually starts eroding away at his nobler intentions. This would be a great episode to do that. And they kind of don't because she just matters so little. Our monster for Nicodemus is horny. Yep, it's horny plant sex pollens. But our two guest stars are, we have Joe Morton back who is in every fucking thing, as we discussed from his last uh, guest appearance. He's Dr. Stephen Hanelton, the weird plant geologist guy. And we also have Bill Mondi, who will be back on the show, according to IMDb. I guess. He has a, a multi-recurring role from 2006, which I think is after you stopped watching, so that's a fun surprise for both of us. Here he blames James Beals, though, who only matters in that he drives the sex pollen into town. Yeah, he has a road rage incident and crashes into Jonathan Kent's car. And I don't even want to know what the Kent's insurance premiums are like. 
but Jonathan rescues him and gets sprayed by the magical plant pollen. And then he falls into a coma. The villain of this episode is bad writing. Uh-huh. And it's hilarious because even the episode can't justify why these plants are a thing. Like, Lex shows up at his secret meteor research facility where he's got Hamilton stashed away and is like, why are you doing plant stuff? I told you to do rock stuff. And he's like, I'm doing rock stuff to the plants. This is how science works. You just do random shit till something happens, is basically the explanation. Hamilton is such a weird character, because I feel like he could have been interesting in a Herbert West kind of way if he had more of a recurring role, but I thought the show had forgotten about him until he came back for this one. No, no, he'll be back in in and out for a while. Chloe goes to talk to him at one point in this episode, which she really shouldn't do, because it's been established that the reason he uh, lost his he very unfairly lost his tenure so sad at a college was that he was fucking around with undergrads which we've just written that in and then glossed over it to be fair this show glosses over age gaps with very troubling power dynamics a lot a lot but yeah it turns out these horny plants are actually native to smallville (gasps) it's not even like meteor driven really they're the ayahuasca of smallville so they actually end up having to solve it with um, secret native recipes. Yeah. There are no native characters in this episode. No, I mean, I, it would almost be worse if they dragged some poor oh, indigenous actor in. Oh, just wait. Oh, no. I'm not surprised. It's Smallville just in 2001. No, no, that's not true. IMDb says we're into 2002 now. Yeah, this aired in 2002. We're fully into looking for those weapons of mass destruction. At some point, somebody says that one of the the inherent traits of humanity is sex and violence. Jonathan is really rude to Lex. Lana gets horny. Yep. And tries to fuck Clark. In the swimming pool. Yep. There's a very obvious body double. Mm -hmm. Thank God. And Pete is unfortunate. Remember Pete? Sometimes he gets things to do, but mostly not. Yeah, and somehow, sometimes when he does get things to do, it's real unfortunate. He is essentially the Ron Weasley of the series, in that he exists to resent his friend with greater powers. And also has a crush on their mutual friend. And is jealous of the rich guy. Like, it's a whole thing. He's black, though. So... So he's menacing Chloe and threatening to kill Lex Luthor and resenting the fact that Clark is better at him than everything, and... And it's, it's yike. It would have been bad anyway. Uh-huh. It would have been bad and tired. But now now there are uncomfortable racist dynamics. Yeah. Clark has to disavow all friendship with uh, Lex in order to punch Lex long enough to punch Pete. And then Pete goes away again and has nothing to say for the rest of these episodes, really. Yep. Because his use has been completed. You know, one thing I will say for this show is that even when Chloe's not really important to an episode, they remember to include her and give her like a few lines of characterizing dialogue, which means she's probably one of the better written characters who are not a Luther. I feel like the reason her character pops in um, consistently, though, is to continue to assure us that Clark is fuckable and desirable. Oh, yeah, definitely. That is entirely why she's there. But it's... but she has more presence than Pete, unfortunately. yeah. And it's it's just one of those things that horrible person Allison Mack is an, is a pretty okay actor. So even though she's not given much to work with and her character is a tool to further Clark's narrative, 
it at least gives you something to hold on to, a sense of continuity. Yeah. Whereas Pete only exists when the plot is convenient. But we defeat the plant medicine with the actual phrase Native American medicine. Remedy, excuse me. I think they do say remedy, don't they? Mm. And everything goes back to normal. And it's a really bad episode. And Lana has no idea now that she is stripped down in front of Clark. But he smirks about it. Lana is also so pure that her deepest desires are mostly to sit on top of a windmill. Episode three of is of this batch. Well, our three guest stars for this one, because it's very, very fancy. We have Ryan Kelly, Jim Shield, and Brandy Ledford. Ryan Kelly has had some troubles in his career. Oh. <laughs> not as like not interpersonally, it's just his his IMDB page makes me feel for him. Because he's very young in this. He looks like a middle schooler, young high schooler, probably. He's a, I feel like he's supposed to be about ten or twelve. Just from the dynamic they keep trying to give him with Clark of this sort of surrogate little brother thing. And Clark is supposed to be about fifteen or sixteen. Allegedly. Allegedly. This enormous 15-year-old. But Ryan Kelly is still working today, and good for him. His two most notable roles on his IMDb since this Smallville episode are a live-action version of Ben 10, which I did not know was real. I had no idea that was a thing. I missed that show entirely. I'm sorry, listeners. It feels like something I should have watched, because I watch a lot of cartoons. You also missed the boat on, like, Danny Phantom, too, right? No, I watched Danny Phantom. Mm. Um, That was, like, right on the cusp. And then Ben 10 was slightly slightly after that, which I might have felt kind of weird about. I don't watch American cartoons. Uh Uh-huh, it might have hit during that period. (laughs) It might have done. And also the fandom, as I recall, was very incest-heavy, because Mm. the main relationship is the dude and his sister. Ah. I'm sure Ben 10 is a lovely show, and if you enjoyed it, that's great. But it's weird that they did a live-action TV movie about it. Uh-huh. Starring this kid as Ben. Okay. And then there were no more live-action ones. And then he was on that fucky Teen Wolf show, which uh, feels fitting. I mean, similar those, posters. All of those Canada shows. As child actors go, you know, he's fine. This asks him to do a lot of your standard psychic child acting where he looks at someone meaningfully and then says something and then makes an obvious lying face to let the audience know that he's not actually observed something he is being psychic our two evil thief caretakers for him are extremely strong as that guy actors they have both done a shit ton of tv work we're seeing credits from andromeda and stargate and yes they definitely just worked around the same lots Bay- oh, oh, she was on uh, the Baywatch reboot in 99. Lordy. Good for her. For neither of them are really asked to do anything except these very stock amoral robber roles, though. Yeah. These are people who would be mean to a child. Mm-hmm. So this kiddo gets away from them, and that foments the whole problem, because they they just cannot rob people without a psychic child to make it easier. So I- Ryan claims to have amnesia in hopes that He'll get adopted by the Kents, which, good hustle, but... But he's just so helpful. He's just so cute and helpful. And I think and it's this people-pleasing thing that I think is interesting. Like, it's an interesting take on a kid who's been abused and wants to immediately sort of fit in. Mm-hmm. But... 
Oh, and he likes Clark because Bella. Because Clark is the only one whose mind he can't read. Why is that? I don't know. Head empty. Yeah, you know, you're right. That's entirely why Clark has no thoughts. And this is definitely, of this batch, the episode that is hit hardest by IDK, the powers. Because I feel like it has the most going on outside of outside of the basic plot mechanics like mm. in terms of themes and then it comes around to what i don't know, I don't know. this all has to happen at the same time right here like problems resolved yep we send the kid away again be gone shoo to edge city with you i'm sure that we'll see that uh, he'll live along and uh well we'll see him again i'll put it that way I honestly expected them to kill him off before the end of the episode because this kid is way too useful. His entire role is to go around and listen to the people in Clark's life and come up to Clark and be like, you know, um, here's all of their internal character motivations in case you wanted to make any use of that. He does not. And they almost set up something interesting in terms of this disparity between who Clark imagines somebody to be and who they are. And clearly the gem of this episode was in his relationship with, with Lex. But I don't think the script really in, sets up a consistent thing in, in terms of like, is this somebody who he's given the benefit of the doubt when there are deeper layers there or somebody he's put up on a pedestal? Well, and I think it's also hit very hard by sort of one of the central conflicts with this show, which is especially in 2002, the show's double standard about uh, who deserves privacy. Mm. And as the United States was turning into more of a surveillance state post 9-11, it creates this really awkward tension where Clark's secrets are important and deserving of privacy, but everyone else's secrets are malignant and should be rooted out by him so that he can have full information when proceeding. Because he's the good guy. Yeah. He's our hero. Yeah, that is an interesting tension in terms of, to borrow a TV tropes term, God forgive me, (laughs) protagonist-centered morality where everything the lead character does is fine, but it's not cool when other characters do it. Which we also see with with, uh, him blowing up at Chloe, who was being invasive, but also... But also he's doing the same thing to other people. Although... There is the the minor distinction that he receives this information unbidden. Ryan just offers it to him. These Which is convenient because it exempts Clark from the realm of being invasive. He always just happens to find out information like when he happened to see Whitney's dad's pills. Mm-hmm. Well, he needs to know everything so that he can be in everybody's business. But it's just because he means so well and he would never misuse it. You should trust him. Whereas anybody else seeking out information is a problem. And then the last one. Iceman again. Uh-huh. Except that this one's saying a thing about how oh, euthanasia bad. What year was the Dr. Kevorkian case again? 1998. Yeah, Kevorkian was found guilty in 99. Now, for the children at home who might have heard of this vaguely, but aren't extremely familiar, who was Dr. Jack Kevorkian? Um, Kevorkian was a doctor who was a proponent of euthanasia and assisted death for people with terminal illnesses. And he was arrested and tried for murder in the U.S. Yeah, the the Kevorkian case really brought this whole wave of media about the right to die and euthanasia. 
and who should have agency in these decision-making processes, this episode is really sort of also conflating the act of euthanasia with angel of death killers, Mm -hmm. like nurses. Right, which is a specter as far back, at least as far back and farther than misery, which was, I think... Which was one of the bigger things that popped it off because that's what she was doing and why she had all this shit around her house is that she was killing patients who she thought deserved to be freed, quote unquote. Yeah. And I mean, angel of death killers are a real thing, too. Mm -hmm. But the conflation of these two concepts is real problematic. Oh, yes. And I mean, my mom is um, a lifelong RN and she's she's talked a lot about how she kind of struggles with these kind of right to die things because she has seen a lot of people who, who have expressed those thoughts and then who change their minds when they have proper care and pain management. Um, And so that's like this wrinkle of nuance of it's not necessarily all bad, but could it, you know, would this be lessened if we were helping with hospice care and helping these people be comfortable palliative treatments right as opposed to just sticking them somewhere and leaving them to die slowly (laughs) this episode is not that smart yeah so this guy goes to visit his mom who is clearly not receiving palliative care she's still like receiving ongoing treatment even though she's she doesn't want it Mm -hmm. so she requests that he assist her um he smothers her Nurses come in, he gets knocked out the window and falls hilariously as a dummy for a couple stories. <laughs> and it's and amazing. It is. And then um, charged with the power of intention, the uh, kryptonite on, on his bracelet stabs him in the wrist and he wakes up in the morgue. And now when he touches living things, they wither away into dust. And so he is immediately consumed by the driving desire to euthanize as many people as possible. And this becomes a problem when he decides to go after Whitney's dad, who is in the hospital again. Because old ladies are dispensable. Again, in a smarter show, I think that there might be a buildup between this trauma of your personal case that was justified and feeling like you have the power to make that distinction for others, which is definitely what this episode is trying for, but it's so clumsy. It also pulls the switcheroo at the end to assure you that he's actually a bad person because they reveal that his mom didn't die and that she's actually happy to be alive. So everything you've done since then has been a mistake. Even the woman who explicitly also asked you to help her die. Right. There was never anybody who actually willingly chose euthanasia. So it completely undermines the moral ambiguity of the entire thing. Also, he kills a dog. So we know that he's a bad one. So you know he's bad. It, it's also doing that same thing that happened, like, in Hourglass, where we're looking at Clark's discomfort with the elderly, which is a weird thing to keep coming back to. I think it's supposed to do something with, like, his fear that he's not subject to mortality in the way his loved ones are, but mm-hmm. it just comes off as old people icky. Right. And I feel like that theme would have more power for an adult Clark. You know, a Clark who's starting to watch Lex head into middle age and mm-hmm. be David Xanatos and fear for his own mortality. <laughs> but it doesn't work with a teenager. Yeah. And I mean, old man is a pretty common like jab for Superman to use at Lex because he knows that that's an insecurity of Lex's is that he doesn't have access to immortality and that he does age. Mm-hmm. So I think that something could be there, but this is not accomplishing it. Right. The the different context matters. Yeah. And so 
as an individual villain, this guy is meh. Sad. There's not a lot there. Like he's doing his best, Mister Rinaldo Rosales, but he just—he's uh, just a knockoff crow in terms of vibe. He gets a scene where he menaces people with his his rogue gloves and accidentally feels sad about doing a murder. And then we have people turning into bad CGI ash. And then hilariously, it turns out he has not peed since he died. Nope. He goes to see his mom in the hospital and touches himself and withers away to ash as he deserves. So I Suicide guess is fine. He hasn't peed or jerked off since he died. No, he's dead. It's fine. I guess he never had to sleep and rolled over and touched his hands. Hasn't undressed. Yeah, and that episode is, I think, most notable for its use of, well, Lana-adjacent things. Mm. Everything being Lana-adjacent, because she is, of course, the heart of the show. Naturally. I- oh boy. Lana's characterization is really all over the place. I don't actively hate her in these batch of episodes like I was frustrated with her last time. I actually think her scene with Whitney and Reaper is maybe the first time I found their relationship at all compelling, because I thought- When they talk in the graveyard, it's genuinely kind of human in this teenage way of, here's somebody who should be goth, who is constantly kind of living in that present of mourning for her parents, and somebody who has been trying to avoid it, and them coming to this kind of centered place over that. I thought that was good. And I'm like, oh. Whitney is almost a developed character at this point, but I still hate him because he's a shithead. Yeah, it's really hard not to have that hangover of, you introduce this character with a hate crime, though. Yeah. And that scene between them and Reaper is also interesting because it comes after Nicodemus, in which plant-drunk Lana breaks up with him in the cruelest way possible. And it's partly like, yeah, break up with him, girl. You guys suck together. Mm -hmm. But also, that was fucked up. And it's especially fucked up because that episode spends so much time being like, oh no, these are their true feelings coming out. Yeah, but she comes into school dressed like Elliot's makeover from that one time on Scrubs. In the kind of costume that she should have always been wearing, if we're honest. Yeah, like, slightly heavier eye makeup, but not really. Platform boots. Really good platform boots. Mini skirt, black top. Lovely black floral top. Red underwear (laughs) that we are forced to look at. Also feet. Feet fetish stuff. Yup. And she comes up to Whitney and says, you know, you're, you're not any fun anymore now that you're always anxious about your dad. And you're, you're boring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's very teenage. Like, when you just want to get away from your own responsibilities and somebody outside of you has their own shit to deal with and you just wish they would stop that for your sake. That's very teenage and real, except their apology happens off screen. So it doesn't so minimize that potentially meaningful conflict. And yeah. it's just shitty then. And the, they're just back into their default state of, they're dating and it's also you know i could see her having that kind of resentment because being upset about her dead parents is her thing Mm -hmm. like that that's my feeling who am i if i'm not the kid who's sad about her dead parents yeah i can't deal with you dealing with this this active loss Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot that they could have explored there and didn't yeah and then they ruin her perfectly good underwear In that pool scene. Yep, she jumps in the pool in her bra and underwear. She can never wear those again. Especially the bra. Bra's ruined. And I know it's not Smallville's fault, 
this has this goes at least as far back as Dawson's Creek, probably farther to like early '90s stuff, like Party of Five and 90210, and all those shows that are casting twenty something. Street. Yeah, all those shows casting twenty somethings as teenagers, but that moment of pre Riverdale shit really feels blatant here, where you have this you know, early 20s actor who we are supposed to buy as a character of 15 or 16 in lingerie with a with an extremely Quentin Tarantino-esque shot of her feet on a diving board. Yeah, and like, the blatant use of a body double, You, in my opinion, if you're doing something with a 15-year-old character, you shouldn't be writing things that you have to use a body double for, for primetime television. We could have just not done that. <laughs> And I'm not a prude. I know that teenagers have sex and that there are ways and means and reasons to depict teenagers experiencing their sexuality. But this was very gratuitous in a sex pollen episode. It's not something authentic like, but I'm a cheerleader, which has, well, which should have had the very awkward over the dress masturbation scene because it's focused on the emotions and the anxiety. And, you know, there are ways to frame this that isn't about the audience looking at this character were meant to this see as a teenager well in this dismembered body because you're using a body double so we don't see her face she's present only as a body in those shots mm -hmm. so it's even more objectifying not only is this not an actor it's not even this actor and it's it's just some parts it's just a body for clark to react to yeah and this has always been the issue with with Clark and Lex, which we can talk about in a minute. <laughs> yeah, because Clark is also objectified to a great extent whenever his shirt comes off, which is often. Uh-huh. And it's Tom Welling, who is, you know, what, 20? Early 20s. And he does not read as 15 at all. He just doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird and uncomfortable. Yeah, he reads as... An oddly petulant and naive 22-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who still lives at home with his parents. It's and goes to school. <laughs> yeah. This Madonna horseshit with Lana in the sex pollen episode makes me long for death. Yep. Because I keep seeing these moments where Lana could be a really interesting character. And where, you know, Kristen Crook is trying to do something, but there's nothing there to do. And then, of course, you know, you have... Chloe there with Allison Mack and it's in Reaper they do the whole thing where where oh no now her her crush on Clark has has been brought to light and he does nothing with it yeah and Ryan the psychic kid who can't read a room mm -hmm. decided to tell Clark that Chloe wants to go to prom with him and he asks her about it later, and she looks just mis- It's really well acted, that scene, actually. She mm. looks just miserable with this this terrifying- And she's like, what, what, did- Did Ryan tell you that? And he's like, yeah. And then he doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't ask her, and she doesn't ask him, and- Uh-huh, and it- And there's this weird line about how Chloe hates dresses, when, honestly, we've seen her wear skirts and stuff before. She's got the funky girl- Mm -hmm. kind of clothing style lana wears skirts less than chloe yeah it's trying to paint her as you know the the t the one of the guys character that he's just never noticed because she's friend and it it's grafting that archetype onto her where it just doesn't fit like she's spunky or what have you but she's been pretty 
femme in her her entire aesthetic. And I guess we have to attribute it to Clark being unobservant. <sighs> Willfully. God. And, you know, it would be one thing if if this were actually in, ter- in this episode that is about letting people keep their secrets and, like, the discomfort of having to come to know people on their own rather than taking an easy answer uh, or what have you. If they had interrogated Clark being uncomfortable with his friend having a crush on him when he doesn't feel the same way about her and not wanting to hurt her feelings, but it just plays him for oblivious because we can't have Clark intentionally hurting someone's feelings or even living in that nebulous zone of him being in the wrong, even if he didn't mean to hurt her. Yeah. And this is also coming off the back of an episode where they were assigned to do like student heritage projects with one another. Mm -hmm. And he blew up at her and got super mad because she got too invasive looking into like the history of his adoption. Which she was wrong to do, but also. But also he's not extending. Right. The privacy issue you talked about. Yeah. Every time this show tries to do romance, it's bad. Every time. Yeah. Is there a thing the show is good at? I don't know, man. The Luthers, they're fun. Ah, well, but Lex Luthor, you know. I heard he once stole 40 cakes. <laughs> and that is terrible. It is. There is good Lex shit in this in, in this batch. There's also unfortunate Luthor shit. <laughs> That's true. Y'all, the, fu- the most genuine fucky relationship in this show is between Lex and Lionel, and it's so uncomfortable. It's bizarre. These actors just have vibes. And it's definitely not where the show's going. No, it's not, not at all. Thing. And it's... this isn't even a shippy thing. It's just, why are you vibing? Yeah, no, I don't. I'm not here to ship the dad and his son. But, like, I would watch a movie with these guys in it. Uh-huh. As, as like, mind-gamey sort of university professor and a murderous student or something, maybe. It would be fucked up. I'd be into it. Uh-huh. Yeah, go on, go on. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's not a thing I'm looking for, but they just have these very horny vibes when they do their mind game scenes and i don't did no one stop them (laughs) surely somebody must have realized i don't know man and it's like they were aware that this was a problem dynamic so they just decided to throw dad and son into every sentence of dialogue it doesn't help no it just makes it weirder it's a lot Mm -hmm. so like that's a thing but like the luther's or at least the interesting part of the show. A scene is always going to be good when, when Michael Rosenbaum is on screen, basically. You sprinkle on, on top, this, this beautiful Baltimore gay. John Glover is good, and we love him. <laughs> He's we one of yours. We love the Riddler. <sighs> but yeah, you mentioned that this introduces an important piece of lore for the series, which is that Lex has a dead little brother. Yes, named Julian. Um, this doesn't really get into it, but... It was sort of present. Lex opened up about it when Clark was, like, bonding with his pseudo-little brother. Lex, like, offered to share his comic book collection with the kid because they both really like Warrior Angel, who is literally just Superman the Bald. Fake comics never look appealing. I don't know what it is about- The way you draw farts, man! (laughs) Warrior Angel would never have a tracer. (laughs) There is something about- the extremely extra stylized this is a fake thing that we're trying to get you to vaguely recall a real thing always looks like who would ever read that yeah it's odd 
I think Stray is not as good as Zero in terms of just giving people acting to do, but I think it's the most Smallville-y episode. I think it is the episode that peak epitomizes what got people to watch that show for so many years. Because it's really trying to say something. And it's also got the greatest line in the history of the show. Tell people the line. Okay. Well, tell people the setup. So the setup is um, Lex's dad has requested that he come back to Metropolis. And so Lex goes to Clark and is like, hey, hey, my dad wants me to move back home. But like, I don't know. The subtext is, I I could stay if somebody were to ask me, but, like, obviously nobody's going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is happening in the the B-plot. And so Lex comes back the night he's supposedly going back to Metropolis, but, like, he got into a car with a driver he's never met. That's not very Lex. And that's how he ended up kidnapped by the bad guys and A whole thing. It's a whole thing. But... He stops off before going to Metropolis at the Kent farm to give Clark a goodbye gift. Clark's like, wow, a sword. What is it, Rye? It's a foil. Every hero needs one. He says that and somebody patted themselves on the back so hard that day. It's just the perfect high school literary Uh (laughs) reference. It's the most Smallville thing on Earth. It's this incredibly (laughs) stupid line delivered... With as much sincerity as Rosenbaum can muster. And it only works for the double meaning. Like, it does not work as a line uttered in earnest. (laughs) No, because Lex is so determined to, like, strip off his his pretensions of, like, his rich guyness around Clark that I don't buy he would correct him (laughs) if it weren't for the double meaning. (laughs) Like, he really wants to be soft and approachable with this this guy he wants to be friends with until exactly the precise instant clark turns 18 which is creepy it's creepy i don't (laughs) want to be looking at this like oh there are vibes here because the 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 age gap is big enough to be and power dynamics are uh, big enough to be weird but clark so relentlessly does not read as 15 because of welling and because Michael Rosenbaum has such fucky energy in his Lex <laughs> that that all of a sudden there are these vibes of you're kind of a creep trying not to be a creep. It is terrible. But yeah, I Stray is the most distilled essence of Smallville. You've got this extremely sincere, pretentious line. You have this badly done thing about comic book heroes and the music is the least subtle thing on earth and the villains are are comical just so cardboard people are dying but nobody cares and they are trying to say some things with some big themes that are interesting and then kind of don't go anywhere it's peak smallville oddly enough i also thought the b plot in um in reaper was pretty good because it's this whole thing where even Jonathan Kent is almost likable in it, but the B-plot is all centered around, like, the issue of negotiating, making friendships with your dads, and Lex is struggling with how to how to make a gesture to Clark without pissing off Clark's dad. And he solves it in a really nice way. But I think it that Lex sort of negotiates this situation with Grace. Well, and so much of it is about how desperately he would like Jonathan to be his dad. Uh-huh. He's definitely dreaming of Jonathan at their wedding, 
telling him, you can call me dad now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just writing in his diary. <laughs> Mr. Never marry into a family for your in-laws, Lester Alexander Kent. It doesn't go well. Especially when the guy hates you. Now, we haven't had much occasion to visit Wisdom from Pa Kent, because he's been kind of being in the background, but there is something about Reaper that is just so... The show kind of, but not really, acknowledging this double standard in how... In Jonathan Kent's aga shocks forthrightness and lex luther being lex luther and i think that um it's also the closest the show has so far come to actually making lex seem a little bit sinister for once i looked at the show and i was like oh okay maybe that maybe not in the episode where people are mailing disembodied hands to his friends nope (laughs) not that one This one. This is the first time when I've been like, okay, maybe even if this character has good intentions, it's slowly being eaten up by his willingness to do brutal things and lie to someone if he thinks it's for in their best interest. But Clark lies to people for their best interests all the time. So even that. I don't know. There's something effectively creepy about that scene where Clark asks him point blank about this other guy. (laughs) He, He... he does a Jedi truth at him. He's like, what? What are you talking about? Don't you trust me? Uh-huh. And it's a little bit spooky. And I'm like, okay, that worked for one time. And then it it doesn't, then it goes away again. But that's clearly what the show wants to do, is balance this this back and forth between between who Lex thinks he is and genuinely wants to be and who he is becoming as he tries to compete with his father, which is also the theme of this round of episodes. Yeah. So basically, like, this B-plot is all that father-son bonding. What is it? What even is it? Mm-hmm. Who makes decisions about it? So Clark doesn't want to go fishing with Jonathan, because fishing is boring. It is, yes. But it's their yearly fishing trip. So Lex suggests, how about I just give you tickets to my skybox It's at the Sharks Stadium... So that you can do something you both enjoy. And Clark's like, yeah, that sounds great. And then Jonathan's like, fucking really? And they have a fight and they call off the whole thing. Talk a little bit, kind of frankly, actually, about toxic masculinity when Clark is explaining to his mom why they will never Mm -hmm. hash this out. This show is always at its best when it wants to talk about toxic masculinity and sports culture. Like, that is truly Smallville's actual real strength. Yeah, surprisingly. Yeah, they have this conversation in the barn where Martha asks Clark to patch this up because Jonathan and his father grew apart by just not talking for long enough over this small slight that eventually shattered their relationship by distance. And and Clark talking about how they're just going to wait long enough and not talk about it and then things will be fine again. And it is this very sad thing. And meanwhile, because Whitney's father is so ill, one of the things they're processing is that his dad may never get to see Whitney play professionally if Whitney even makes it that far. So at the end of the episode, after many, many insults from Jonathan and Lex pulls some strings to create like a practice session with the Metropolis Sharks football team where Whitney gets to run around with them and practice with them Mm -hmm. so that his dad can watch in a wheelchair looking sickly, but made the three hour trip to Metropolis. Totally fine. I'm sure he was airlifted by Lex. 
that is the moment when Jonathan is finally willing to give him the smallest smidge of benefit of the doubt, which I'm sure will be crushed in the next in the next four episodes left in this season. <laughs> it's a nice moment because, uh, you know, John Schneider's not a bad actor. He's not a good actor. He's, <laughs> but he's fine. Finally, Lex has his validation. The slight validation that maybe you're not entirely Satan at all times. And then Clark and Jonathan actually talk and say, hey, like, we mm. like spending time together. Because I, the fishing wasn't the thing. And I mean, a big part of it is also that that Lex admits that he was honest with Clark about the fact that he had been investigating this car wreck that initially, you know, brought them together. And Clark was the one who had made the decision not to tell Jonathan. It, this is not some mysterious machination by Lex. It is a father-son communication issue because of this extremely aggressive relationship that Jonathan has had with his son's friend. Oh, oh. If it is the consequences of my own actions. <laughs> Smallville did a thing where they planted something a few episodes ago and brought it back for an emotional payoff in a way that furthered the relationships between the characters. I'm so shocked that I could die. And it's also interesting to see Lex sort of process the fact that his relationship with his dad is so bad and such bullshit that he really shouldn't be giving advice to anyone. Yeah, this does kind of mark a turning point of Lex trying to interfere in Clark's life by giving him shit. It's like, oh wait, no, my dad is the worst. Maybe I don't have the healthiest understanding of the way anything works. You know what we call that? Growth. Growth. I think that about wraps us up except for the music huh well i did want to make a brief call out to the things that this show wishes it was the uh, zero wants to be rashomon very much so badly it so badly wants to do this thing where it shows different possible interpretations of the scene but they're all narrated by the same person so i can't be sure if it's on purpose but does the club did club zero feel extremely like strange days to you like the scene where they walk up the steps and the shot of them sitting at the at the booth table. I mean, it's very sort of techno club. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very sort of of that time. Because that would have been set in 96. If we think about it. Or 97. Stray is just Annie. It's just Annie. It's just Annie with powers. All of a sudden, Tim Curry is up in here trying to exploit this orphan with a relationship to a bald billionaire. Yeah, except Daddy Warbucks hasn't adopted her. She's been adopted by Daddy Warbucks's buddy. And Nicodemus, as you mentioned, is just the Sex Pollen episode from Star Trek. Yep. Proud tradition. Reaper is the show playing itself, which uh, is just sad. Yeah, it's just a repeat. How often should I be looking forward to... To just life-sucking villains uh -huh. of one kind or another? It, it's easy and cheap to do. Yeah. That's how I'll put it. Good to know. The show is nothing if not cheap and easy. But I'm... All right, well, that brings us to the jukebox, our final segment of the show. Thank you once again to the Smallville Wiki for saving me from having to crane my terrible ears to the backgrounds <laughs> of these episodes. All right, are you ready? Y'all ready for this? No, that song hadn't come out yet. <laughs> Actually, yes, it had. Oh my god, what is time? Yeah. <laughs> they can't afford that. Probably. For zero... We have Battle Flag, the Low Fidelity All-Stars Remix by Pigeonhead. God is a DJ by Faithless. <laughs> Big T by Fred Rappaport. Zulu by Richard Butler. 
Let's Go for a Ride by Eleventeen, Lonely Road of Faith by Kid Rock. Nicodemus has a butt-ton of songs. So we start with Saturday Night's Alright by Hal Lovejoy, which is a great song. <laughs> and that is in Art Faithless City Boy's car. Of course. Because he's from Metropolis. Meanwhile, over in Jonathan's car, we have the theme from the Dukes of Hazard, aka Good Old Boys by Waylon Jennings. It's a it's a reference, you see, because yep, he's he on, on that, that show. show. Yeah. With, with the racist car. Uh-huh. Sure is a racist car. And then we have Sadie Hawkins Dance by Reliant K. That's right. How long has it been since you heard the phrase Reliant K? I Will Make You Cry by Nelly Furtado. This is where all of the season's budget went. I'm convinced. <laughs> the music for this run of episodes. Like, holy shit. Yeah, these ones are very packed and very recognizable. The biggest songs, I think, maybe of the season so far. Yeah. We also have- and we I haven't even hit prom yet. Oh no, God. I Have Seen Destiny by Zero Seven. Supernatural by Divine- by- by- by Divine Right. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Uh-huh. Love Sweet Love by Josh Clayton Felt. The slow dance- the easiest slow dance song you ever heard. Big Day by Purricane. And Beautiful Day by U2. I had that album. It was inescapable. It, it wasn't even downloaded on your phone for free. No, phones didn't do that yet. For Stray, we have- Free to Change Your Mind by Regency Buck, Lonely Day by Phantom Planet, Dragging Me Down by Todd Thibold, Thibode, excuse me, Hollywood by Micah Green. Oh my god, Micah Green, that's the Grace Kelly guy. <laughs> Holy shit. Sorry, I'm back. Is It Love by Todd Thibode? And finally, I can't believe on the one hand that it took this long and on the other hand that it's not the season capper, Superman by Five for Fighting. I really can't stand to fly. <laughs> like, if you're going to use that song, why? I guess that's part of what makes Stray the most Smallville-y Smallville episode ever. Is the capper of that. We're too good to use superpowers in the tights and the flying, but we do want to be as heavy-handed on referencing that we're related to that thing as possible. Mm. But in an artsy way. And Reaper only has four songs because it's the cheapest episode of this lot. <laughs> It's got Friends and Family by Trick Turner, Falcor by Fire Engine Red, The Weight of My Words by Kings of Convenience, a great band name, and Sparkle by Ruby Horse. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's more of the Smallville mine of, like, uber indie 90s bands. Oh, Smallville, I don't like you, and yet I, I have thoroughly enjoyed coming back to watch more of this dumb shit. It's a good time sometimes. I mean, it's not good, but it's a good time. That's true. That's an important distinction. I don't know. I think I like to stray the best out of this bench. <laughs> worst episode's definitely Reaper, although it does have that good B-plot. I, th I think Nicodemus is the worst. Oh, you're right. I forgot. See, your brain is trying my to My brain tried you. to protect me. Nicodemus is the worst. Hulu literally skipped it. Oh, wow. Wow. It went right back out of my brain. <laughs> so bad was it. <laughs> Fuck. It's so bad. You're right. Reaper is just the worst episode that's actually trying, in that it's a bad A plot with a B plot that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Much more small billy. I am grateful for the fact that Victoria is not around in this spate of uh, the Luther's episodes. Oh my god, is she gonna come back again? Oh, that's a threatening look you've given me. 
Oh, don't worry. The women in Lex's life will always be important. I feel so threatened right now. I have a soft spot for Zero just because of the drama. Uh Uh-huh. It's intensely dramatic. It's just, as you watch it, it's (laughs) incredibly popcorn. It's just when you stop back to think about it for a minute, it's like, oh, this isn't good. It's not, but I love that one. I was so excited to show it to you. Michael Rosenbaum does many act. And is hung upside down for like half the episode. That had to be hell shooting. He was very red. I was a little concerned about him. Pancake makeup. So much pancake makeup. Adorable. All right. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, thanks to the uh, rearrangement, we will have four episodes next time, too. Let us know what you're thinking. If you'd like us to go back to three apps or keep doing four apps, I think we're open to either. But I think this is more efficient, obviously. Uh huh. But it also gives us less time to go in depth while also sticking around to our usual time slot. So. Yes, let us know. Next time we'll be finishing up season one. We'll go through those last couple episodes and kind of maybe do a bit of a look back on how far we've come. That song is too expensive for this show. Don't look at me like that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to looking at these two years of content as a whole. It's almost time for prom. You keep saying that and it's so ominous. All right, that about wraps us up for this one. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. If you like this episode, you can find more of our stuff by searching SoundCloud for Trash and Treasures or uh, your podcatcher of choice. You can also email us at trashtreasurespod at gmail.com or you can find us on social media. We are on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com or we are on Twitter at trashpod. Come say hi. We'll give you a shout out on the show. Thanks to everyone for the outpouring about our devils episode it was really heartwarming to uh know that the sort of experimental take we we decided on for that episode really worked for some folks so we'll try to keep doing that kind of outside reading where we can going forward because it was a challenge but really rewarding so thank you for that and you know shout out to at amoro rx for 79 who has apparently been listening to us for two years a hero <laughs> we we really appreciate all of you thank you so much uh, next time is our next drunk book club which is a commission episode we'll be reading carry on by rainbow rowell after that we'll get back to the regularly scheduled episodes with yet another commission we've had a spate of them lately yeah. we'll be watching the 2009 star trek reboot which will also be an adventure of a very different sort Well, all of these Star Treks. So many Treks. (laughs) We're trekking on. Wait, no. We're carrying on. Yeah. One of them British things. (laughs) All right. Until next time. Go Crows. Go Crows. Go Crows.